1: This episode is brought to you by Mossy Oak, because everything is better in Bottomland. Kent Cartridge, quality matters, performance counts, Shen gear, waterfowl gear that is built better, and Benelli USA, dominate the skies.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Rolling Thunder podcast. I'm your host, Rob Kinney, joined by RT Bailey. Present. And Spencer Alford once again. What's going on, buddy? Man, everything. That everything at the same time. <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> you ever seen that sh- that movie Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close? Yeah. Should we go through like? a real quick? I think we list. should.
1: Yeah. <laughs> because like of our, our regular com- Tuesday. I've completely blown out my favorite pair of shorts, picking up a box this morning. They the cows ripped. have gotten out. Yep. We so RT and I in the midst of like pre lunch. Had to wrangle three cows. I, I've never done that before. Three quarters of cow. a mile. Yeah, not- we had to we had to go through like neighbors' yards I haven't met yet with a feed bucket. They stopped at a at a pond. Had to get in the pond, get them out of that pond because they were hot. It's been a you it know it's not even like three like o'clock on, on Tuesday. Raw <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, well, we have an interesting guest today. At least I think that he's interesting, and so I'm going to tell everybody he's interesting, and we'll see. <laughs> but I have a pretty good you know, they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I've hunted with, uh, Mr. Thiel's son, um, several times and, uh, he's a character. So I'm assuming that since the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, that the tree's got to be, you know, pretty amusing as well. So, uh, Mr. Dan Thiel. Yes. You go by Dan. Yes. Daniel. Dan. Okay. Great. Is our guest today. And he is, High brass with Ducks Unlimited, and past that, I don't know exactly what you do for a
2: living. So, so I've I've been with Ducks Unlimited for 23 years. Okay, I started as the national chief development officer, uh, but about 15 years ago, became what's known as the executive secretary. And the okay. executive secretary is the the corporate officer who oversees the board relations. Okay, and Ducks Unlimited. When you consider that we have 650,000 dues-paying members and 1 1. 1.6 million people follow us on social media, uh, we have a very large board. Sure. Our board is 65 officers and directors from around the United States that, that govern Ducks Unlimited. The, the other organization that I work with is, we'll call it a, a subsidiary of Ducks Unlimited, that is Wetlands America Trust. Founded in the 1950s as the Ducks Unlimited Foundation, changed the name in the 90s to better reflect the, the broader mission. Today, Wetlands America Trust is one of the nation's largest accredited land trust. And a land trust works with conservation-minded individuals and hold conservation easements on great habitat. And we have about a half a million acres under permanent conservation easement. It's beneficial to the landowner, beneficial for the environment. So basically, it means that that's going to be a wetland forever. Uh, very much so. And so we focus. So we've broadened our reach. So for the first thirty-five years of Wetlands America Trust, we focused only on land beneficial to waterfowl, and and there's a lot of it. Sure and uh, major holdings in the low country of South Carolina. We we were one of three organizations that really started the the awakening of the conservation movement in that rapidly developing area in the early 90s. Thank goodness we did, because Mm -hmm. that is truly one of the uh, fastest-growing places on the Atlantic coast. And And the state
1: of South Carolina is very
2: raw and (laughs) undeveloped, which is amazing. It it is. (laughs) You know, when you think about what we call the DU culture or the culture of wetlands, waterfowl and the great outdoors. There's no place like the ACE basin of, of South, uh, South Carolina, wonderful area. A- and today, because of the great work we were doing 30 years ago, we have been able to permanently protect literally hundreds of thousands of acres that land today had it not been protected, would be the next site for the next Mercedes uh, production facility, mm-hmm. Boeing. I mean, they're all moving to that part of the country. So wow. thank goodness we were there. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. That's incredible. Does anybody have the turkey hunting rights on any of that ground? Oh, yeah. Call me sometime. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> not a no. That's it's right. not a no. <laughs> I was like, and no, no, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> so one of the cool things about the conservation easement is the you know it's a it's perpetual it lasts forever and and part of that arrangement is wetlands america trust is going to work with the landowner with our biologist and we will help you develop a land use plan and we will carve out property or acreage that you can use for future development but the rest of it is hands-off you you need to leave the habitat intact we will work with landowners for timber harvest we'll work with landowners for crops and, and building better wetlands every year we do an annual inspection tour and sometimes we try to time those tours so that it <laughs> know, randomly with turkey season sometimes duck season there you go uh, it just comes with the job it's
1: <laughs> great
0: yeah has so, the job
2: so that the ideal customer
1: is somebody who owns a piece of property that is,
2: I guess it's a wetlands, right? And so we also work, so waterfowl use multiple habitats, of course, wetlands, but also grasslands and some ag production area, uh, especially rice. Mm -hmm. So as the world knows, rice lands are incredibly important to waterfowl, especially in the Pacific Flyway, because 95% of all natural wetlands have been destroyed. They've been developed into housing. So that group of rice farmers in California, they are really the piece of the puzzle that holds mm-hmm. it together for migrating waterfowl mm-hmm. in the Pacific Flyway. That's it, their water. That's their I water. Mean, yeah. And, of course, the, not to deviate too far from your question, but one of the challenges in the Pacific Flyway is the drought. The drought has had an incredible incredibly negative impact on, on water availability. This year, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service issued an edict based on other species, and there's a species of fish that, is, that needs that water as much or more than waterfowl need that water. Rice producers in California have only been allowed to plant 50 percent of what they planted last year so at the beginning of the migration ducks are going to find a lot less water in the pacific flyway than they found last year well wow. so let me I'll, just a real quick story on how easements work so let's say a landowner in brinkley arkansas has a thousand acres and it's worth ten million dollars that individual knows the value for migrating waterfowl it's it's great wintering habitat for ducks he has no intention of developing that land he wants to preserve it and he wants to make sure that his heirs or the next individual who owns that property is is going to be bound by an edict Mm -hmm. which keeps that land together and preserved he does a conservation easement with ducks unlimited and there are there are over 1,000 land trusts in the United States. The best land trusts are accredited, and that accreditation is a very rigorous process. We were one of the first. We're also one of the largest in terms of number of acres and number of easements. So when he puts that land in conservation easement, and I said earlier it's worth $10 million, when he puts it under easement with Wetlands America Trust, it automatically loses 50% of its value. Because it can't be developed. He is going to receive a significant tax benefit based on the difference in the value of that property. And so, you know, people are motivated by different things.
1: Right. Um, And that's what I was trying to get at was, you know, who's your ideal customer? What motivates them? Is it taxes? Is it, you know, legacy? Is it, you know...
2: The best landowner is a little bit of both. Okay. And, And part of this annual inspection and the relationship the majority of those landowners become friends, donors. Um, they will become partners with Duxon. We want them to become partners. We want this to be an ongoing relationship. We want them to introduce us to their neighbors so we can Continue to do more conservation easements. Mm. Who
0: sets the rules for the conservation easement? Is that a federal program, or is that do y'all get to set the rules for that?
2: The IRS plays a pretty big role in that. I this. figured it might. And yeah. So one one of the challenges we face, and it's and it's not a DU challenge because we don't get into um, any conservation easements that we think may be a little on that. That side of the equation. Um, we work primarily with individual landowners, and their goal is to save their land in perpetuity. There are, um, we'll call them strategies. Another another term would be scheme to take a marginal piece of property, put a high value on it, and then do the easements from there. IRS is rigorously not vigor, rigorously they're vigorously pursuing those because those folks are simply trying to avoid taxes Mm -hmm. and and the irs knows that and unfortunately the actions of a very small number of people impact everybody sure how much do you have to play police officer in that world well that varies uh not much most Uh of these folks are either it's never the person who did the easement it's almost always the heir or the next owner As an example, a very notable, wonderful patron for Ducks Unlimited in Memphis uh, had a beautiful property in Montana. Wetlands America Trust held the easement on it. This individual sold it just before his death. The new landowner, who is from Los Angeles, said, well, that easement means nothing to me. That was with the previous owner. I want to build a 20,000-square-foot house on an overlook, that's outside of what's in the easement. The easement does not allow for him to build a huge structure on this piece of property. We actually went to court recently in Montana, and the good news is the easement won. He was not able to build the house that was not included in the original easement document. Now, the, th- the th- I want to stress for anyone that might have interest in easements, we are easy to work with. We're very mindful of how situations change. This, this this gentleman just had a flagrant disregard for the whole purpose of a conservation easement. The 100% of the folks that do easements with DU do it for the right reason. They sure. do it to protect the habitat. Yeah.
1: So, all right, so let's, let's back up for just a second and define the term easement because A lot of our listeners are not going to know what easement means and in my frame of reference an easement is like access across land it's kind of that's a type of easement right
2: it that is in in this term the uh the term easement is more focused on um not so much ownership but uh use direction of use basically exactly so when you do a conservation easement you are surrendering all future development potential of that property so that's the easement they are giving up and that is that is that a document that gets like attached to the deed oh it is yes it, it's it's um highly formalized structured uh and it's, it's recorded it's it's filed as, and recorded it, yes very definitely and
1: i'm assuming that since there's a trust involved that there's some compensation to the individual
2: is that only through tax credits or is it sometimes do you purchase an easement you know so that's a that's an interesting question. The only place where Ducks Unlimited, we purchase easements in two locations, the Pacific Flyway, and we do that in the Pacific Flyway because the incredible land value that's in that area, mm-hmm. and there is federal money available to allow us to buy that easement, it then gives money then to the landowner, which encourages them not to sell that land for housing development. The other place we buy easements is in the Dakotas. And the Dakotas we we could do an entire podcast just on the challenges and the incredible importance of the Dakotas because that's the prey pothole, that's the that's the nesting ground, that's ground zero for Ducks Unlimited. Right. It's where we first started working in the United States. It's where we started working in Canada in the 30s. The, you know, ace Greater percentage of waterfowl are nested and raised in the prairies than anywhere else in the United States or Canada. They're, they're critically important. North and South Dakota have some very draconian land ownership laws. In fact, North Dakota does not allow Ducks Unlimited to own land in North Dakota. Wow. So what we do in North Dakota is we will buy an easement from a landowner and, and we have a list of over 1,500 primarily ranchers who are trying to continue and maintain their ranching lifestyle, which gets tougher and tougher every year. So we buy then a conservation easement. And I shared earlier, I've been with DU for 23 years. When I started at DU, you could buy an easement on a piece of property in the Dakotas for $40 an acre. Today it's in the multiple hundreds of dollars an acre, and it, and it, the price just goes up because the price and the other thing that's happened is genetically modified seed mm-hmm. has changed the landscape in the sure. Dakotas. So in some parts of the Dakotas they get less than fifteen year a fifteen inches of precipitation. Genetically modified seed now allow corn soybean wheat to be grown in places that it was never intended to Mm -hmm. grow row crop agriculture. It was intended to be tall grass prairie, perfect for waterfowl, perfect for ducks. So what we do, because we're not allowed by the state to own land, we will then we will buy an easement and then we will immediately transfer ownership to the U S fish and wildlife service. The fish and wildlife service is our partner. And I'll just point out all of us are duck stamp buyers. The majority of federal and the, in the in the United States, in the history of the United States, there's no more efficient, wonderful, beneficial program than the federal duck stamp program. I think the number is like 95 percent of all waterfowl stamp income, which exceeds a billion dollars in history, is used to buy and preserve wetland habitat for waterfowl. And a lot of it goes to the prairies for for purchasing these easements. So does that
1: money get? disseminated through grants how does that money get handed
2: out it's a complicated process everything we do is complicated there's an entity known as NACA, which distributes funding we work very closely with the u.s fish and wildlife service fish and wildlife service has regions all across the united states we work out of the denver region and what we've discovered we have major donors who have given DU literally tens of millions of dollars with the primary purpose of buying and protecting these conservation easements in the prairies. We, we, the, the challenge in this system is the federal government. We are overwhelming them because they have a process, and it's an arduous pro- process. They have to do the biodiversity survey. They have to do the boundaries. They have a lot of stuff they have to do in order to accept the easement and put it to completion, so it, it it's a it's a huge part of our conservation program. Uh, you know, we do buy land, um, and, and historically, Ducks Unlimited, Wetlands America Trust was not in the land buying business. What we've discovered is, in the last several years, there are lots of states and lots of regions which want to preserve waterfowl habitat they do not have the financial resources to do so ducks unlimited is able to immediately put money on the ground to buy a piece of property and we're competing with farmers yeah some farmers want to buy this land for row crop agriculture some duck hunters want to buy this land so that they can own their own place to duck hunt and there there's a there's a balance between not being the jerk you know, not being the bully on the block, buying too much land. We, we work very closely with all of our on-the-ground partners. And, and, you know, one of the hallmarks to DU's 85 years of success, we partner with everybody. We partner with every state game and fish agency. We partner with the Army I mean, Even though the Army Corps of Engineers do some things which drive us nuts in terms of wetland degradation and the loss of wetlands, they're also a great partner in trying to restore wetlands. So we have found over the years it's important to partner with everyone and try to find workable solutions, and, and we're very good at that. That's intense. It is very and, intense. There's so much
3: more. <laughs> there's so much behind the curtain. Yeah. I just, I mean, hey, uh, Ducks Unlimited wants to, <laughs> wants to buy this. What do you think? Oh, sure. I figured, I mean, I figured it was that easy.
2: Well, and in Portland got the ducks is best best interest at heart. A lot of so people want to know what are you doing in my backyard? And it's taken it's taken generations to have duck hunters and conservation supporters understand and appreciate that working in your backyard is may not be in the best interest of waterfowl. That that working in the nesting ground is probably the highest priority. If you want to make Maximum benefit to waterfowl work where they're born, a- and the challenge is we are in a race against time against a lot of factors, and and that the factor is genetically modified seed have changed the playing field up there, and you know twenty years ago they couldn't plant this land, now they can, so you know recently the pond the the federal fish and wildlife service duck survey came out and that that survey is pretty important to us and i'll give a shout out to ducks unlimited ducks unlimited back before there was a ducks unlimited there were actually two groups ahead of du one was north american wildfowlers founded in 1927 nash buckingham the famous memphian was the paid executive secretary of north american wildfowlers the wealthy group of Northeast businessmen, duck hunters, who founded this group, then founded another group in the 30s called More Game Birds in America Foundation. That same group of people are the group that founded Ducks Unlimited. So even though we were officially born in 1937, the same group of people that were doing the work in 37 were doing the work in 27 what they discovered because what they tried to do was to develop the european game model and the european game model is pin raised or farm raised birds it works with pheasants it works a little bit with quail but it doesn't work with ducks yeah and it took this group of dedicated hunter conservationists they put literally millions of dollars in the 20s and 30s into this model they took it across the United States and recruited farmers to to, ra- to pin-raise birds and release birds. And it didn't take them very long to discover this is not enough. It's not going to work. And so that same group of people did what was called the first wild duck census. And mm. that wild duck census was essentially the aerial survey in 1934, which a, a great majority of the technique that they use today in the aerial surveys was done by this group of guys in a bunch of old tail dragon airplanes in the 30s. And and I so there's about a half a dozen DU history books and, and I've read all this. It's pretty incredible. You talk about some brave individuals. If you think about it, the airplane was only 15 years old when they were doing this. Yeah, I was so, going to
3: say What do they do strap them to a kite? That uh, You say 1930 and I yeah, don't feel like there's
2: Yeah, Ooh. when you look at, you know, World War I was really the development of the aircraft. I mean, yeah, the White Brothers did it in, you know, 1903, but it wasn't until World War I that they really developed widespread use for aircraft. This group of brave scientists, conservationists said, let's get in those aircraft and fly and land on water and count ducks. There's,
0: so these guys are like flying steermen out there they just are. trying to, yep, so that's exactly. wild.
1: There's two things here I want to zero in on that I just think is fascinating. So nearly a hundred years ago,
0: they thought there they were had a, dudes yeah. who were
1: just as crazy about duck hunting as we were. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. I mean, like we've all been there when our wife is like, "You're doing what? At what time? Why are you? Mm-hmm.
0: I, what time I are you getting up tomorrow some morning?" Some guys
2: who were so pioneers in that w- way. When you read these accounts, um, and I've read a bunch, and and it's 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 incredible. They were number one. They were lucky. Nobody died while doing that. Yeah. Um, they were incredibly dedicated and disciplined mm-hmm. in how yeah. they did it. Uh, they did it for darn near nothing. You know, these guys weren't paid a great amount of money. Um, it, there was just a spirit of we've got yeah. to they understand. They believed in the cause. They have to believe. Yep. Uh, w- what was happening, There were, we were in a massive drought. This was the Dust Bowl mm-hmm. of the 30s, and the reality, not to get too deep of history, but that – Geography of Canada was never intended to be row crop agriculture. It was tall grass mm-hmm. prairie. and it's where the buffalo lived in the, exactly. the time. And so you have to look at what was happening on a world stage. So go back in the teens and 20s and what was happening in Europe, in the countries of Russia, and massive famine mm-hmm. and totalitarian governments. So what was happening... Both the United States and Canada said, hey, we got free land. Send your people to our country, right. and we'll provide free land if they'll become farmers. They'll because settle we, it, yeah. We were an agrarian-based mm-hmm. economy in that era. And so here's what happens. Here all these crazy Scandinavians and Hungarians and Russians move to the prairies, yep. and they break the prairie. They, they plow it up, and it, and it worked when they had water. But when the drought hit, they were absolutely not prepared Wiped for out. what happened next. Yep. You, you, can't, you can't grow these crops without water. And so what they created was an enormous mess in Canada. And so when Ducks Unlimited was founded in 37, the goal was to generate a few hundred thousand dollars a year, do it for five years, and we would fix forever the duck challenge. <laughs> if, we could put, if we could just put 3 to $5 million on the ground yeah. in Canada— we could fix this. Knock it out. But the key was they were buying some of this land in that in that time period for two dollars an acre. It had no Gosh. value. That no one no one had any money. Wow. And they were buying and selling the land for two bucks an acre. So that's why Ducks Unlimited went to work. And that's why we started and we did we only did conservation work, conservation delivery in Canada, in the wow. prairies of Canada, from nineteen thirty seven to nineteen eighty four. And in nineteen eighty four our scientists said, No, wait a minute, there are a lot of ducks that depend on prairie habitat for In the US, being born. Yeah. And and equally important, we have migration quarters and wintering habitat. And so it was a complete game changer and it was all we've always been based on science. Science told us you need to work for the life cycle of North American waterfowl.
3: Go ahead. All right. I was going to say I'm glad you brought up Canada because I didn't know that Ducks Unlimited was a Canadian thing before it was an American thing. And one of my questions before you went into that was going to be, you guys have all these issues getting on ground in the Dakotas. Do you have the same kind of issues across the border? Like, is it easier? Is the, is the government more, you know, voluntarily, you know,
2: cooperative? So it's it's different by province. You know, in the United States, we're very much a federal focused government in Canada. It's very provincial and some provincials are much easier to work with. They're more focused on conservation than other provinces. Canada has always been incredibly important to us. Uh, let me stress, there are three ducks unlimited organizations, ducks unlimited Inc in the United States, ducks unlimited de Mexico. We, we're really the only major conservation organization doing work in Mexico Mexican habitat is critical for wintering waterfowl. We were started in 1974 to do work in Mexico. The conservation work in Canada, we had to create Ducks Unlimited Canada in 1938. So we work across the continent with three different organizations, and and we're very different organizations. Each organization has its own board of directors. They each have their own paid staff. However, in in the eyes and the mind of most of our members, they they only see one DU. That's yeah. right, yeah. And, and we try to keep it that way. That, you know, there's no gain in trying to hey hey, that's DU Canada. They're different from us. <laughs> yeah. No, we're all about the same mission. Mm-hmm. We all share that that similar mission, which yeah. is let's let's preserve habitat for waterfowl.
0: In your uh, twenty some odd years of being there, have you ever gotten to participate in the aerial survey or ride along?
2: No, that's the. F- so now the, the survey is uh, very strictly managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Gotcha. Um, and I've heard great stories about the adventure that is that survey. Oh, I'm sure it's incredible. Um, I have flown around Cannaquot a bit in the Haviland Beavers, you know, mm-hmm. amphibious aircraft. I don't know how those guys did it in the 30s with that primitive stuff they dealt.
1: So I, I said I, w- I noticed two things you said, and I wanted to point them out. One was about the adventure 100 years ago. But the other I thought was really interesting that I have not given much consideration to, it, which, which is that you said you hear from people all the time, what are you doing in my backyard? And and I didn't think about when I kind of tried to envision your job and the, what all it entails and the people other people in your organization i didn't think about what a stark contrast you have to live in like with respect to say nwtf because what they do is in the backyard you know they're not they're not working with a um a migrating bird (laughs) like you guys are and so i think it's i'd like for you to go there just a little bit more because i think that it's good for us to think about the fact that um there's a priority on the you know the the home front of of where the breeding population happens and making sure that because you guys can build an impoundment right here behind the shop, (laughs) but that's not going to help more ducks be born next year. And that's kind of your point,
2: right? we're, We're heavily guided by science and about every five years, our science team, and it's both the United States team, the Canadian team and our partners in Mexico They're very collaborative in the work they do. And this is very, very high level, looking at as much information as possible. And and we determine what are the highest priority areas. And as I shared earlier, you know, California is a disaster. Uh, Overdevelopment and now drought, diminishing water resources. That makes it a very high priority because we're really the only organization doing landscape size conservation work in that in that very important flyway we do work in all 50 states we have done conservation sure. projects around the united states we have field staff both field fundraising staff the regional director that does the ducks unlimited dinner we have biologists in most states uh, we have regional offices across the country so we, we do projects in the backyard mm-hmm. But it's always determined by what's most important. Sure. Mm-hmm. And what happens often is we are approached by our partners. So as an example, Louisiana Department of mm-hmm. Fisheries and Game is, is a great partner. Florida Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Indiana DNR, they are wonderful partners. They will come to us and they will ask, they'll, they'll tell us, hey, look, the most important waterfowl project in Indiana is the beekeeper slough in Greene County, Indiana. Will you help us? generate funds so that we can pursue matching Mm -hmm. almost almost every DU project you see in the United States has matching dollars. And so when we do a Ducks Unlimited dinner, whether it's in Memphis or Nashville, Mm -hmm. those dollars go to a very national, continental use. And we then take Ducks Unlimited money raised at the local event we put major donor money or major sponsor money with it, and then we use state game and fish money. We use foundation money, and so we have been we have become by a sense of necessity masterful at finding partners to mm-hmm. help us in our mission.
1: Mm-hmm. How did you get into this line? Of work? I was
2: that was going to be my question,
3: man. Let's take it back. <laughs> yeah, twenty, you know, nineteen ninety eight. I want to know about you know the Thiel heritage and did you grow up? You know, hunting with your dad and how you landed at Ducks Unlimited. Well, are you
2: a Memphian? No, sir. I grew up on a small horse and cattle farm in Indiana. Went to college on a scholarship to study archaeology. Did it. I worked in Honduras uh, for six months. Went to grad school. As an archaeologist? As an archaeologist. I worked at the Mayan side of Copan. This is our second
0: archaeologist we've had on here. Wow.
2: (laughs) So there's another nerd around here. I love it. It's (laughs) great. So I get to graduate school at UT Knoxville, and it didn't take me very long to figure out I'm not going to make it. And it was something called statistics. Uh, and then all those foreign I had to take two foreign languages to get the doctorate. So I bailed and I landed in the wonderful world of university fundraising. Went to Purdue University, worked okay. at Purdue for a few years. Indiana State, I met a young lady who was from Memphis and she was a traveling sorority consultant. Uh, We date, I, I visit her as a friend for Thanksgiving in Memphis and it was decided that I would be invited to go hunting with her father and the two brothers. I did not want to do this. I came down to see the girl, I didn't come down to go duck hunting, I didn't know what duck hunting was. Uh, Next thing you know, I'm at the Jonesboro, Arkansas, 24-hour Walmart buying all the gear and a gun. You're getting vetted. Oh, (laughs) big time. Full tilt. And it was a terrible time. It was a two-duck limit, and it was the year after they had switched from lead to steel, so everybody's Mm -hmm. angry anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And my wife's family uh, hunt on the St. Francis River sunken lands near Truman, Arkansas. They have a camp, and so I'm at camp. I don't know anybody, but this... Is it Hatchie Coon? Uh, Hatchie Coon is adjacent. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So we, we actually own our own camp. Okay. And we had two wonderful blinds, one on the river, one in the woods. And I have been kidnapped to go to duck camp. <laughs> and this predates cell phones. So I, these
1: three guys, you
2: really don't know. Yeah. And the, I, the I sunken- don't know. The
1: Sunken Lands is that's like a whole world of its own. I mean mm-hmm. This
2: could be a whole other podcast oh, on, yeah. about the adventures on the on the Sunken Lands.
1: Sixty three was not a four-lane no. divided. I mean, it was every stoplight from the bridge to the sunken lands and was
2: Spence, as you were about to find out <laughs> since you have two teenage daughters, that future father-in-law doesn't like me. Yeah. <laughs> and here I am sharing camp and the next morning I go out for the opening day of duck season. The The tradition in the Burton family is to, they have a big floating blind on the river and it's got a shooting porch and then it's got an enclosed, you know, mm-hmm. 10 by 12, about the size of this yeah. room. And within two hours, the Burton boys are in there cooking on the charcoal grill and drinking something called Dr. Kuyper's or the Kuyper's <laughs> peach schnapps. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I am miserable. I'm sitting out there by myself with a brand new 12 gauge shotgun, which I've never shot and freezing to death
1: while your future father-in-law is drinking peach schnapps. What have I done to deserve yeah, yeah. this situation? why me, Lord?
2: Situation? All of a sudden, I have to look up the river, and I see a, what what I know now was a mallard drake flying down river. It circles over our blinds. Of course, I don't know how to blow a duck call. It comes right over the decoys. I step up, and I shoot it. And when I pulled the trigger on that gun... The inside of that blind exploded and those three men came out yelling and cussing and they think I was playing with the trigger and I, yeah, misfired. You know, shot the gun. <laughs> and I said, no, I, I shot a duck. I said, well, you couldn't have, there are no ducks. And, and sure enough, you hadn't seen any ducks that morning. Finally, the older brother says, Bob, floating down the river, there's a duck, there's a dead duck in the river. <laughs> Bob jumps in his boat, races down river and he picks the bird up and I see him look at it and i see him throw it on the floor of the boat in disgust he races back slides up in front of the blind of course we're all hanging over the edge i'm so i'm i'm giddy thrilled <laughs> I'm <a> <laughs> uh and my future father in law looks at me and he says daniel do you have any idea what a banded duck <laughs> no, no way, way. I said, I, is it that white band around its neck and he threw the duck at me. <laughs> 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 my first bird was a banded bird. It, it, oh oh he threw the duck at me. Yeah. That man has hated me ever since. Promise. Oh, um, my goodness. And, and I've been fortunate. I've shot a number of banded birds, and I've always kept a a hope that my dear old father in law one day would, and he still hadn't killed a banded bird. But, oh, uh, man. So, so that was oh my start. Was, that was very, and, and so the, the other thing is finally I got the hell out of camp and got back to Indiana to my job. And my future father in law would call and say, Hey, ought to be a good weekend. Why don't you come back? Why don't you come back? Man. So I cool. drive back seven hours the next couple of weekends. It's miserable. You know, all it is, they like to eat and drink and have fun. That's and, right. and it was fun at camp. But nothing happened in the duck vine and finally near the middle of january my future father-in-law calls and he whispers they're in the woods and i i had no idea what that meant i said bob what does that mean he said get down here now we're going hunting in the morning the birds have found the woods and the burton family had two duck holes it's called the stud horse and so what I drove down. freaking moniker! That is a yeah. great. Yeah, name it's a great for a great. A hole. For a great yeah. duck blind. And so, sure enough, next morning was mad. I, I get goosebumps right now. Yeah. Forty years later, the I'm river had gotten it. out, and they had shallow water hole. Yeah, well, that's got to be at two sixteen. And when uh-huh. it's at two sixteen, the birds find the the stud horse, and it was game on two bird limit. And of course, everybody knew there were birds in the stud horse. And all morning long, all the locals would come. Jump on the blind, yep. shoot their birds, and leave. That lasted for three days, and it wow. was it was just magical to mm. see the flooded timber and the mm-hmm. birds in the timber. And yeah, you know, Spence, you mentioned Daniel. Um, that's where Daniel shot his first der- oh, birds. that's cool. So he 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 kind of grew up in all this mm-hmm. and had had exposure to some of these wonderful experiences. Mm-hmm. Game and fish came in, of course. The as you know, Spence, the Sunken Lands was an outlaws mm-hmm. paradise <laughs> uh, for sure. You know. My family's, you know, My wife, <laughs> just to clarify, for just you a know, Spence, yes, yes. <laughs> Spence. <laughs>
1: we, if, if anybody not, knows, it's Spence <laughs> Halverd. Hold on, I'm not at all saying that I'm not an outlaw or haven't ever been an oh, outlaw. But geez. Mr. Thiel is not in a position to know whether I am or not. <laughs> we you
0: don't just know each know. other that way. I just you just love heard. That. <laughs> you know, Spence.
2: <laughs> all, all I can tell you is I'm, I'm. You know, I was still very. I actively, actively hunted over there when I started at DU, and then it. it it just, just changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Game and Fish came in. They got rid of the permanent blinds. and it and There's it been opened tons it up. of
1: ownership issues over yes. there with what's the river channel and not the river channel. It's a gray area mm-hmm. is what yeah, you're mm-hmm. referring to. It, yes, very much of so. gray area. Yeah,
2: uh, But I'll say the hunting's gotten better. Coons done a wonderful job of uh-huh. taking care of their property and and enhancing their property. So Game and Fish has done a nice job in that mm-hmm. part of the country. Yeah.
1: You know, that's such a cool story. So your your roots really are in... Development, fundraising, yes. development, yes. and and at the collegiate level, and that's I guess what your wife was doing. At no, the so my level. so my
2: wife's a pharmaceutical rep. Okay, uh, but she was she was president of her sorority at LSU. She was doing an assignment in Indiana. We met, got married, moved south. Mm. I I got an incredible. I was very fortunate. If there was ever a time in my life that I needed a job, I got a job as head of development at Arkansas State University. Oh well. And the hunting culture, as you know, Spence, sure. uh, <laughs> in northeast Arkansas, is it's all about duck hunting. <laughs> That's right. And so you know, like everybody else up there, I was a member of the Rotary Club. All those guys in the Rotary Club. That's right. They all hunt. That's right. Yeah. And man, I couldn't have found a better place to get started. Mm-hmm. And got you know became a member of the family camp and and begin to move and, and hunt other locations. Mm-hmm. And um, after seven years at Arkansas State, I was the vice president for alumni development at University of Memphis. At, the, at President Lane Rollins going away party, one of our wonderful, wonderful board members in Memphis is a gentleman by the name of Steve Reynolds, who was the president of Baptist. Steve was an ASU grad, and I had met Steve through ASU and, and of course duck hunting. At Lane's going away party, he said, hey, Dan, there's a job open at Ducks Unlimited, and I want you to apply for it. I want you to look into it. I, I declined. I said, Steve, I, I love what I do at the university. I believe in the mission of this university. And, and University of Memphis is a great institution. It is. And I was very proud of my position. And he said, Dan, as a courtesy to me, will you at least call these people? So mm. I, I called. I actually caught the outgoing HR director on his last day in office, and he wasn't too excited. He was no more excited to talk to me than I was to talk to him. And he said, well, it doesn't sound like you're very interested in this. You're doing this as a courtesy to Mr. Reynolds. He said, I'm going to put your name on a list, and they're going to hire a headhunter, and and they're going to come down, and they'll, they'll talk to you if they're interested. Three or four months go by, I get a phone call from a recruiter, and I, again, I wasn't interested, but I said, you know what, I'll meet you at the World Club at the Memphis Airport, and I met this very attractive young woman at the World Club, and I told her, I'll give you one hour. I spent five hours. And here's the the story that I'm about to tell you is as true today as it was 23 years ago. I was a DU member. I was active in DU in Jonesboro. I was a part of the the local chapter. But in my world, Ducks Unlimited was a dinner once a year, Mm -hmm. and it was the DU magazine. I really had no idea what Ducks Unlimited did. What sold me on Ducks Unlimited was the, recru- the recruiter, and mm-hmm. the recruiter had done her homework, and she had maps, and she had books, and she had all this stuff that talked about the conservation I just told you about. Yeah. I didn't know that, and I felt like a fool because, man, I'd been a DU member for seven or eight years, and I had no idea mm-hmm. what was going on behind the curtain mm-hmm. at Ducks Unlimited. I remember going home and telling my wife, I said, hey, I think I'm going to go to work at Ducks Unlimited. <laughs> And she said, you are not. I said, oh, yes, I am. <laughs> and I, I, looking back, it's the greatest decision I've ever made. Wow. And because DU is such an incredible organization, I'll, I'll throw in a couple of quick statistics. So in the, in the nonprofit world in the United States, there are 1.6 million 501c3 nonprofits. Mm-hmm. All universities, all churches, foundations, the Rotary Club, they're all 501c3s. Mm-hmm. Ducks Unlimited is a 501c3. Based on annual income, we're among the 250 largest in terms of income. So in the in the nonprofit world, we're a giant, and and no, we're really a pretty well kept secret in the Memphis area. People don't realize how big Ducks mm-hmm. Unlimited is. The second statistic to share with this is. We're an incredibly efficient organization. And it is by board mandate that 80% of every dollar raised go to conservation. Wow. And so we run this thing incredibly tight, incredibly efficient. And and that's that's where the board comes in. And we have had great board members lead this organization. And to be a member of the board, number one, it's an honor, but it's also an incredible responsibility. It you know, the other thing I would want listeners to know, if you're on the DU board, you pay all of your own expenses to come to the meeting. Hmm. And then at the end of the meeting, my office is going to send you a bill for every <laughs> diet coke you drank and every dinner you <laughs> enjoyed because that's how that's how you maintain yeah. that 80, 20 program efficiency and and we're very proud of that so that's that's how you get to be a great respected organization is running it as you would run your family business business. that's right yes yeah very much so that's
0: That's really cool actually you know I didn't realize that about about DU on some of these things not to say that y'all were going out and doing these extravagant whatever's but for to have board members actually have to pay their own way to do something and it's not just this great perk that they get to go to wherever the board meeting is. like That's pretty that's yeah, interesting.
2: I, I'm pretty impressed with our board. Our board are very dedicated. They, they do this to serve. They yeah. can be on any other board that they want to. Um, I will give a shout-out. We have a Memphian for the first time ever as our president. Chuck Smith is a very successful businessman in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Uh, his company was National Guard product. Any of the metal that goes on a door is made by National Guard product. Chuck doubled and tripled the size of that business. He chooses to keep that business in Memphis because he believes in Memphis and he believes in products made in America, whereas a lot of his competition has gone overseas. Chuck is now chairman. He has sold the business to his two oldest sons, and it continues to thrive and be a very successful business. But what's neat about Ducks Unlimited, we now have a very, very successful business person serving as the national president of Ducks Unlimited. The other thing to share, one of the hallmarks of DU, it's a shared leadership. Mm -hmm. While we have a very strong chief executive officer, Adam Putnam, who uh, Adam was the youngest member of Congress when he was elected many years ago in Florida, served five terms in Congress, was the elected secretary or commissioner of agriculture for the state of Florida Adam has been an excellent chief executive officer, had only been here a few months when COVID hit. And not only did we survive COVID, we thrived during COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, we went on lockdown, we laid employees off, but the majority of us worked every day. And then an incredible, this is, again, running DU as if you were going to run your own business, we're known for our, our event fundraising. Mm-hmm. You know, most every town in the United States has an annual Ducks Unlimited banquet. And, you know, we, we created that banquet system. Um, and it really is. I mean, if you read a lot of tech book, textbooks about fundraising, it gives credit to Ducks Unlimited in the mid-60s coming up with the idea of the, the, the raffle, the auction, donated events, Uh, You know, DU in 73 did the gun of the year program. The next year we did the the artist of the year program. All have been incredibly innovative. And those dinners are the face of DU across Mm -hmm. the United States. When COVID hit, those dinners were shut down. Mm -hmm. And so within 12 days, our team of field fundraising leaders and our computer team created an online auction platform. Mm-hmm. And that online auction platform kept this organization alive. It mm-hmm. kept the payroll happening. It kept money going into conservation. And you know, again, there could there could be a podcast on what a DU during do during COVID. Mm-hmm. We actually had conservation staff guys living in campers because they couldn't get into a hotel and we had mission to deliver on the prairies. They stayed in remote camp locations wow. just to get the job done. That's so cool. Wow. Because in a lot of parts of the country, the work we do on the landscape can only be done during certain months of the year. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. So you, ha- you have to do it when you can. So oh, we're very proud of where we've come through COVID.
1: Yeah, nonprofits and restaurants, I think, took the brunt of COVID. They did. I mean, and and you don't hear a lot about nonprofits because. There's not somebody crying, you know, a song at the end of it because a a restaurant, you know, there's a, there's an owner and there's a manager and there's somebody who's, but, but so Jimbo Robinson is a good friend of ours. And, and he was, we were in touch with him a lot during that time. We donated a few calls to the online auction and, you know, the, 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 I, I can echo what you just said about DU's resilience and flexibility to craft a strategy and to, not just survive COVID, but to thrive, you know, in COVID. And
2: and so what's happened, so across the United States, we have 92 or 94 Jimbo Robinsons, Mm -hmm. regional directors who work across the United States. Those guys do a tremendous job recruiting volunteers, Mm -hmm. engaging local communities and doing these annual events. Um, But what we learned through COVID is there will always be a market for online auctions. And so we have added a half a dozen or more new staff members in this last budget cycle Mm -hmm. just to see where this might go, Mm -hmm. because there are some States and it gets pretty complicated with state legislatures and gambling and Mm -hmm. raffles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are X number of States that allow online raffles (laughs) or raffle sales, you know, done Mm -hmm. remotely wherever we can. We do it, yep. and it's very successful. Yeah. And so we've learned through COVID how to build this, how to grow this business, yeah, and it's it, so cool. it's been successful.
1: That's so cool. And, and it's really, I think the most encouraging thing, it, two things you've said during our interview that to me are really encouraging. The first is just the emphasis on priority, you know, listing what's most important because it's, you know, when you have access to a bunch of funding and a bunch of money out there, it'd be easy to just send it in a whole bunch of places without a, without a hierarchy of importance, you know, and, and, and a strategy and a goal. But then secondly, you know, that kind of dovetails into the, the commitment and the concern for the longevity of the whole thing, not just a, a, a great idea right now, or not just a big splash for next year, but to make sure that what you guys are doing, is flexible and adaptive for the future but so that it's around for another 100
2: years I mean- so we are very tightly guided by a strategic plan and i've been a part of those plans for the last several years we do on about every five years we are also guided by an annual business plan and whatever's in that plan you will achieve that plan <laughs> we are a highly dedicated and driven group of people um you know you mentioned that you your background was deloitte mm-hmm Bob Hester from Memphis is was the senior advisory vice president who led the development of our strategic plan, which we are now implementing. And it's a very disciplined and very ambitious plan. And And we need to be ambitious because the threats on the landscape are, in conservation are equally as ambitious. <laughs> they are. And, you know, there are so many issues that we face. You know, California has these incredibly... Uh, awful draconian issues against firearms Hmm. and it it makes our work in california all the more challenging Mm -hmm. Um, but we can't give up we're going to work in california we're going to find a way to have firearms as part of our event fundraising system so while there are lots of challenges there are also lots of opportunities Mm -hmm. well
1: we are very grateful for your time and your dedication to the cause. I feel Thank like I
2: learned a lot I today.
1: Too. I don't know if you realize. I think you realize what I'm about to say because you've already you took a took a pretty lofty shot as you came in. But you're our first guest. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that. At, at, in, the at, new, the new, right. in the new in the new podcast studio, we've we've had several remote guests over the telephone, but um, we're ten days from our. "Quote unquote grand opening." Dan, Dan's response to that was, "The hell you are!" He said, "You got a lot of work to do." That's well, just I the way
2: we roll. I couldn't find a place to park in the parking lot for all the construction guys working on your That's project. Right.
0: You should have seen it two weeks ago, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's come a long way you know, in two we, weeks.
2: I'll just tell you, this would be about like something we do at DU. That 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 a a small group of people with a vision and a passion can make this happen. Yeah. So, and i and I know this, I know that you're doing some stuff at DU and we value that partnership oh, sure. because the, the hallmark of DU is all about the partnership. Yeah. So yeah, well, thank you for,
1: yeah, no problem. We're grateful for you guys and um, grateful for your time. And I said that about coming here because we, we really enjoy showing people our place number one, but number two, it just makes for a better podcast when right. so we're all sitting here together mm-hmm. versus over the telephone. And so I, I, we, we pre it's a little thing, but we really appreciate nope. you taking the Making time. Making the to trip. Well, well worth
2: the drive <laughs> and, and to get through the speed traps of Somerville to get here. That's right. So, Good. Well, thank you. And, yes, you know, thank, thank you for your support of Ducks Unlimited. No problem. Thank
1: you Absolutely. for your hard work. And we wish you many years of continued success at Ducks Unlimited. Well, thank you. And, uh, and, and, and all your other pursuits, your Great. family and, and hunting and all those things. So, thanks again for joining us. Awesome.
2: Thank you, man. Appreciate it.
0: Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Rolling Thunder Podcast.
1: We will catch you on the next one.
2: See you on the next one.
0: Yes you not 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 not.